sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. I'm delighted today to be talking to Dr. Julia Starling. Julia is very well known across the profession for her interest in language disorder in adolescence. I think this is an area that's really interesting and one which perhaps doesn't get the attention it deserves just yet. So Julia, would you like to tell us a little bit about where your particular interest in this area came from? Yes, and, and hi Corian, thanks for inviting me to do this podcast. Great opportunity to talk about my favorite topic, which is working with the um, wonderful adolescent, young adolescent clients. Um, so where it came from was a bit of a surprise to me um, in my younger days of working as a speech, well, speech therapist to start with, and then I became a speech pathologist. I would have run a mile from working with an adolescent client and occasionally it happened and I would be very nervous and I wouldn't know where to start with them and they would um, wonder what the heck they were seeing me about and I would do a quick assessment and hand them over very quickly. Um, but life took me down a different trajectory. And when we arrived in, well, just to go back a little bit, when um, I was still living with our family in um, Colorado, um, I came across Professor Vicki Reed's work. And that was at a time when I was doing my master's degree and she was working very much on a program supporting um, young people in, in junior and senior high schools. And that intrigued me. But then we promptly moved to Sydney. Um, I was very fortunate to get a job with a, in the community health services back in the days um, when we were um, not constrained with the age group that we worked with. So the young people that I saw, um, particularly those with language, you know, the long-term language disorders that we now know is a situation, um, uh, the, the persistence of language disorder, um, they got older and older, and I just was able to keep working with them. Um, the next few years, to, to make it a bit more brief, um, saw me involved with mental health services, um, with working with group programs, you know, all sorts of wonderful things, but still with that focus on adolescence. So that, which really culminated in my PhD research in, in, uh, in the two, Oh, whenever I started, 2000 and something or other. So would you like to tell us now a little bit about that PhD research? Yes. I mean, there was another moment in my time um, when I fortunately didn't know what it was going to be like undertaking a um, <laughs> postgraduate research program. Um, definitely, again, one thing led to another. I was at the time working with um, at the University of Sydney as a clinical educator. Um, and Again, um, you know, developing these interests with, with the upper primary and with the adolescent age group, uh, but forever complaining and whinging about the lack of research. 
and definitely the lack of evidence-based um, programs that, that we could use. And by great good fortune, some funding came my way. And with that funding, um, and it had to be for postgraduate research. So we scurried and got me very quickly up to speed with all my overseas qualifications. And um, I can remember talking to Leanne Tour, Professor Leanne Tour at the time, um, about, I've got this funding. Uh, well, I've potentially got this funding and I've got to work out what I'm going to do with it. I just want it to be something to do with adolescent disorders. And, you know, my list was, um, you know, would have filled up a book probably. So she pointed out that actually um, I had just run a project which was taking a bunch of fourth-year students to a school in Southwest Sydney where we run a program over a whole semester working with year seven to year nine teachers on putting language on the curriculum. And at the time I didn't realise that that was turning into a pilot project that then turned into a full-blown um, randomised control trial of that program. So that, that was really what was behind developing, yeah, getting to the point of having an evidence-based program, which that makes it sound very easy at the moment, but believe me, it was a lot of hard work, but great fun um, looking, looking back on it. Yes, it sounds like a fascinating project. So it, it involved working primarily with the teachers or did you look also at outcomes for the children? Um, well, a, a bit of both, Corrie. Um, really, um, what was behind it was this sort of um, professional hunch, if I can call it that, that um, we definitely need to support that age group. And we knew that and we were getting more and more information from longitudinal studies, you know, particularly from the US and the UK. Uh, but there weren't there just weren't enough speech pathologists to go around to do individual one-on-one um, -on -one work, nor was that necessarily the best way to go about it. You know, uh, we, we didn't know too much about the RTI model at the time and so forth, but I think we were just, I think a lot of what, what um, speech pathologists do is fairly intuitive. And the intuition um, for me was that these young people are in mainstream classrooms classes, mainstream schools and classes for the bulk of their waking hours, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at secondary school. And they are surrounded by language. They're hearing teachers talk, they hear, they're, read, they're trying to read um, teachers' written language and, and written resources. They're having to express themselves both orally and through their written language. And so by, um, maybe by supporting teachers in ways to modify the language and the way they're presenting the language in the classroom. Um, it gives these young people a better opportunity to access the curriculum. So that's what was behind it. So the, the um, study was really, it was working directly with the teachers. It was having um, meetings with individual teachers, looking at their resources, working together over a period of time because the, the research told us that that it was best to do these things over a period of time you know try out do make some modifications adapt and adjust and so forth and gradually hand over to the teachers so that they can take the reins um, the students um, we took a, a, a group of 
year eight students at both, this was at two schools, mm -hmm. um, incidentally, um, one who got the program straight away and then one um, that was in the weight control situation. And um, we did a lot of, of, of testing of these poor students. We got through a lot of <clears throat> Freddy frogs and caramella koalas. Whatever <laughs> that always works. No, not again, they'd say these poor things, because we did pre and post and, and delayed post testing with them. And um, so they were, they were our secondary cohort, the, the teachers were our primary. But we did get, you know, much to our delight, we got really good results from both the teachers and the students in two particular areas. And one was their listening comprehension, which was mainly to do with vocabulary. Um, and the other was in their written expression. Mm. And what were the changes you saw in teachers? The changes were to do with their realisation about how important language was and how it um, was there in everything they did, really. You know, it was like revisiting. I think I can remember one teacher saying, look, this isn't rocket science, but it's just revisiting this and, and realising how important this is. Um, some would talk about how they hadn't realised that with the students who, <clears throat> excuse me, had um, language difficulty or language disorder, as, as we were, were um, you know, these, these were carefully screened students, um, maybe that was what was behind the behaviours that they were seeing in the mm. class. Their disengagement, their um, lack of willingness to be involved in discussions. Um, you know, their, their misinterpretation of instructions, they're mucking up in class mm -hmm. in some cases, so they, they could look beyond that. Um, we had some wonderful teachers who, um, I think some of my favourite teachers were the math teachers. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, which was a surprise for them. It was, all, it was in both the schools, it was a surprise, I think, definitely starting at the executive level, that we weren't just talking about the English teachers. Mm. And we had um, agriculture teachers, we had maths, we had science, because, you know, that, that was their steep learning curve, that, that language was behind all teaching and learning. Yes, not a surprise to us, but perhaps a surprise to some of the teachers. It, it, it was. Um, and, you know, one, one of the, the um, good things that came out of the the um, study was when we went back and did some post-teaching. We, we did a focus interview with all the teachers so we could go back and revisit them. Mm. Uh, kind of a controlled interview situation. And um, almost without exception, um, the teachers had taken the ideas and run with them. You know, they saw a lot of value in that. And, you know, when you go in and you think, well, these secondary teachers, they're so... I learned so much about the secondary school environment through that, you know, real eye-openers for me. But they are so focused on the curriculum. Mm. They, you know, they feel, well, sorry, I can't do anything differently at all. I've just got to get through this curriculum. So for them to think, okay, I haven't got to do anything differently with the curriculum. I just have to adapt the way um, that I am presenting this curriculum and, and instructing my students. Sounds like a fascinating study and immensely useful, I would think. Well, um, it has proven to be quite useful since then. I mean, we're going back, oh, I think about 10 years now. 
from that study and when it was first published, which was in 2012. And, you know, I'm really excited when I hear from um, speech pathologists really around Australia um, who are using the program and, and doing wonderful things with it. I think, oh, that's such a great idea. You know, if I had more time, I would, you know, go back and, and um, you know, do, do more with the program. But I don't really need to because speech pathologists are taking it and running with it. That's fantastic. This sounds like a good time to talk a little bit about services for adolescents with language disorders across Australia. What's it like out there these days? Oh, Corrie, I'm so glad you've asked that. <laughs> and the answer is it is very mixed. It is very mixed. It's frustratingly mixed. I mean, Australia is a big country um, and we're very spread out. And of course, we, you know, we have um, different state governments and territory governments, but it, it is frustrating how differently the speech pathology services are run. Um, you know, this is probably a good time to mention that the wonderful work that um, our um, postgraduate students at um, Sydney Uni, Nicola Shelton, is, um, you know, looking at a lot of the issues that um, 12 to 16 year olds with language, with developmental language disorder have um, you know, more in, in the social realm. And, um, but her primary fact-gathering work has involved surveying a whole lot of, she had around 100 speech pathologists across the different states and territories. And what she found was that, um, you know, when we look at the RTI um, response to intervention model, and look at the interventions, the different tiers of intervention that speech pathologists are doing, it's very much related to the states or territories that they're in and whether that state government um, had makes provision for speech pathology services in their schools. And here I'm talking about um, the states with provision being Queensland and South Australia and Tasmania and Victoria. And the ones that don't include New South Wales and Western Australia and the ACT. Yeah. Um, we didn't have any um, speech pathologists responding in the Northern Territories. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the situation mm. is there. But it was sort of like night and day that um, those that um, were working in the secondary school scenario um, we're doing a great deal at that tier one collaborative consultative um, level, you know, whole school mm -hmm. programs and, and support and so forth um, versus um, the ones where there um, was no provision tended to work in the private sector. And of course, we know there that that, that limits as to who can access the services uh, immediately. I mean, I had, when I was running my private service, up until a couple of years ago when we lived in, in Sydney. Um, I had the good fortune, I, I suppose, of working in a fairly affluent area. And so parents, you know, were able to make that decision to access private speech pathology services. Mm. Um, but it would have been a different scenario had I, I lived in a different socioeconomic area. Um, so, you know, that's, that's in a nutshell what's happening at the moment, you know, it's variable. Um, I've, I find when I'm doing um, 
you know, when I'm collaborating with, with groups of speech pathologists across Australia, um, the majority of my time is, is spent um, traveling to Queensland, which is wonderful. <laughs> there are some yes. amazing speeches up there doing great things in schools all the way across Queensland. Um, also Victoria, also South Australia. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, that, that keeps me very busy, but my, on my wish list would be, let's make that happen in the other states and territories as well, particularly New South Wales and, and Western Australia. It's, you know, it's frustrating what, what um, big populations are being very underserviced. Yes, it's nice to hear your wish list for what services might look like. Is that the extent of your wish list or are there other things you might add? Oh, def- definitely. Um, the, the wish list involves, um, oh, you know, raising awareness. And just, you know, at the moment, of course, we have a wonderful um, awareness raising campaign going on with um, for developmental language disorder. And, and I would, you know, urge everyone to look at the RADL site, which is um, raising awareness of developmental language disorder, which originated in the UK, but is now an international site. And we have our own wonderful um, Sean Ziegenfutz, who we usually call Sean Zed, which you'll probably laugh about, um, who is our, you know, our, our main representative in, in Australia for that campaign. Um, it, it's slow, but we will, you know, push away at that because it is a very, DLD particularly, um, the developmental language disorder is a very invisible disorder you know Mm. these children don't stand out as having a language disorder in a classroom necessarily they might stand out as being very withdrawn or they're the class clowns or they'll Mm. be behaviors and particularly when they reach the adolescent um, and and secondary school scenario um, you know those issues might be quite firmly entrenched so it gets it gets complicated at that point so I would put raising awareness definitely um, at the top of the list, I would have um, definitely increasing the services. Um, and I know, our, you know, with Speech Pathology Australia, our 2030 vision is to have a at least one speech pathologist in every school, including secondary schools across Australia. And, you know, hopefully I'll still be around to see that happening. And, and we get, um, you know, that's part of our advocacy role definitely um and i would also like to see far more um research done for this population specifically we still have to call back quite a bit fall back on um the research that's done with the um, younger populations you know the intervention and and early primary school so let's you know there's a whole lot of wonderful young speech pathologists coming through looking for a good cause i think we should involve them um, in in doing, you know, not it doesn't always have to be randomised control trials, you know, up to that level. I mean, if that's possible, that's great. But single case studies and you know, evaluations of programs would be really good. That's it for starters. Oh, oh, that's a long, long list of things. And hopefully, both you and I will be around to see some of that achieved. Well, I think so, Corey. <laughs> but I might say, you know, just as a little addition there, um, which is a bit of an overview of this, 
um, of, of where I've come from and what I've seen happening. Um, and I sometimes talk about this uh, uh, as a scenario when, you know, back in the day when there were a very small group of us working with this population. And we felt we were a bit out in the wilderness, um, but we're a stubborn lot. And so <laughs> we persevere because, you know, I wasn't, I think, sounds a bit altruistic, but we don't want to give up on these young people, um, you know, who are experiencing um, failure. Um, who think they they often say that they feel as if they're dumb and stupid, and that's their you know view of everybody else getting on, and they don't understand their problems. Um, but um, we would go to a conference, you know, even um, Speech Pathology Australia National Conference, and if we were talking about these issues, we would usually be put um, in what I call the three thirty slot on the last afternoon. Um, and that was probably even just 10, 15 years ago. And now things are very different. So, you know, these this population of, of adolescents with these um, communication disorders are starting to get their day in the sun, which I'm very pleased to see. And you've played an important part in helping that to come around. Thank you so much for your time today, Julia. It's been lovely chatting with you. Um, and let's hope that we do see change continuing in services available to adolescents with language disorders. Thanks so much, Corey. It's been a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.